Well, I have a story to share this morning. Um, you're used to hearing stories about me, but this morning my story is not about me. This morning I'm going to throw my wife under the bus and I'm going to tell you a funny story about my wife. Uh, before I do, I just want to celebrate her. I don't know if she's in here. Um, she's amazing. I love her so much. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Babe, you are perfect. Um, well, she, uh, she's funny, and if you get to know her, she's a great woman. One of the things you'll quickly learn about my wife when you meet her is she has a wild and vivid imagination. Uh, I'll give you a, a story of this. When she was five years old, she was in school and, you know, going through her day, and she had this one friend who she met on the playground. This girl was a couple of years older than her, and um, this, you know, one day they were playing, and I don't necessarily know the events that led to this, but this little girl informed my wife at five years old that she was a witch, and this would be the last day of her life that she would remain a girl, but from this, from tomorrow forward, she would turn into a bear and would live out the rest of her days as a bear. Now, to most, uh, you know, to most people, they would have heard this, they would have laughed it off, and wouldn't have given it a single thought, um, but that is not my wife, um, and when she heard the news, her imagination is so vivid that she was absolutely convinced that her destiny and the rest of the days that she would walk out her life, she would walk out as a bear, fully convinced that her future was going to be lived out as a bear. In fact, she says that the, for the rest of the day, her major concern was the fact that she was bummed out because she didn't love the woods. And she was planning about what her life was going to be like and what her house was going to look like in the tree that she was going to live out the rest of her days. In fact, she was so convinced as she recounts the story to me that she says that she, go, she went home and, you know, she's living out her days and she lived out the day basically doing everything that she loved to do because this was the last day she was going to be able to live as a, a young girl. And she says, you know, she, she's getting ready for bed, she gets out of the tub, and she starts to make her rounds to all of her family members as she's getting ready to tell them her official goodbyes. In fact, she recounts the, the, the interaction between her and her dad as she grabs her dad's face, like real tenderly, and is just letting him know not to worry that she'll always think about him for the rest of her bare life, okay? Absolutely convinced that from this moment forward, she was going to. She tucks herself into bed, and as she's laying down, she's really just imagining what her life is going to be like because she's so convinced that when she wakes up in the morning, she's going to be furry and large and potentially tear her way out of the house. I'm not necessarily sure. And when she woke, she did like every single one of us would probably do. The famous... <laughs> as she realizes that, in fact, she was still a human being. And as she recounts the story, she wakes up and runs out of her bedroom screaming, I'm a girl! Right? And I guess imagine how strange her parents probably thought she was as this six-year-old girl is having a revelation, finally, that she is a girl. Now... Maybe you have never gone through an opportunity where you thought that tomorrow morning you were going to wake up as a wild animal. However, what I've become very convinced of is that every single one of us has a picture in our mind, a vivid picture of what we think that our future is going to look like. And sadly, statistics are showing nowadays that 72% of people, when they think about their future, experience overwhelming feelings of anxiety, of worry, 
In fact, they're saying now that children as young as 13 and 14 years old are walking around with intense anxiety about their future. Now, the title of my message this morning is called The Power of Prediction. And I've realized that all too often people predict their future. And as they're predicting it, they predict that their future is going to be lived out full of challenge and hardship. But instead, what I've learned is, is that instead of predicting the bad, I can actually begin to predict that my future will be good and bright and enjoyable. That the same patterns that lead me to fear of the future, the same patterns that lead me to nervousness and anxiety and worry, if used properly, I can use this exact same process in my life to begin to build a picture of prosperity where my future is concerned. How many of us in this room would say yes to rather than having another sleepless night, another anxiety-filled, dread-filled day, would we rather say yes to living a life where we live out every single moment of our life with an excitement and an expectancy towards the bright future that the Bible so promises to us? Because this is the beauty, and what I started this morning off with was that we take the Bible literally, in that I believe, and we believe here as one of our core tenets of Light City, is that the Bible is true. And when the Bible talks to us about our future, Jeremiah 29, 11, this famous scripture tells us that God has plans for our future. And while sometimes religion and, you know, ch church styles could make us feel that following the plan of God for our life is going to be full of suffering and challenge and hardship, Jeremiah cuts that off and tells us that God has plans for us, and when we follow those plans, the scripture says that they're plans for our good. They're to give us hope and a prosperous future. And so I realized that if I can take the Bible literally, it's promising me that if I can simply grow to understand what does the Bible say about my future, and how do I access that good future, the Bible tells me that I don't have to live with this negative prediction of my future. I don't have to worry about getting sick or getting or, or shortage or lack or divorce. That I don't have to live my life follow, with anxiety following me at every turn. But when I understand how to practically apply the scriptures to my life, the Bible tells me that I can live a life of excitement. I can live a life of joy. I can live a life of peace and satisfaction in everything that I go through. It promises me that even though I may go through challenge, that I can go through those challenges with a high hope or a high expectation that the outcome of that and the result of that challenge in my life is actually going to produce a life greater than the life I had before I went through that hardship. And we see this as truth in the scripture. I'm going to pick one passage, but... We see this theme absolutely scattered throughout scripture of people using their biblical prediction of the future to create the life that they so desire to live. We see this in 1 Samuel 17 where David shows us this process. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what's happening in Samuel chapter 17, 
Um, this is essentially what's happened up until this point is, is Saul, there was this guy, it was never God's intention that the Israelites would be governed by a human king, but that God would always be the king or the ruler over the Israelite people. And the Israelites, out of their, of their heart cry, desired a king so desperately, and so God granted them their desire and gave them a king. And this first king's name was Saul. And Saul was, you know, they say he was head and shoulders. He was exactly the man that you'd expect the king to be. He came from a good family. He had these great gifts. He looked good. He sounded good. He acted good. He was the king. But it wasn't long before I think that Saul got a little full of himself uh, and started to follow his own thoughts and his own ways more than he followed God's thoughts and God ways. And has anybody ever been there before? Been there one too many times myself. Um, and so we meet this, this person, David, in 1 Samuel, and it says that when he's about 10 or 12 years old, Samuel comes to David and anoints David as the future king of Israel. So, you know, and, and it's actually funny, the story of how David gets here, because his father, you know, Samuel comes to David's father's house and says, one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse, who is David's father, calls all of his sons to come into the room. And Samuel goes up to each and every one of them and is like, no, it's not this guy. 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 And Samuel comes to Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? Because I know God sent me here. You know, and Jesse's like sitting in the back and thinking, hmm, do I have any more sons? Hmm. And he's like, wait a minute. Wait a Babe, there is one. There's one more, right? I'm pretty sure. And it says that he has to call his son in from the pasture where he's tending to the sheep. And so we realize that really quickly from this is that God uses unsuspecting people to do some of his greatest things. That so often we can disqualify ourselves because of the way that we see ourselves or the labels that other people have placed on us. But we realize David would grow to be the greatest king other than Jesus of the Israelite people. But his beginning was that his father didn't even remember that he existed. And so this is how we meet, we meet David is that he's anointed as king. And then it says for five years, so you can imagine, this kid at 10, 12 years old gets anointed as king. He gets oil poured over him. There's this huge ceremony that happens, and he just gets sent back into the field. I think that sometimes this can be the most challenging season in our Christianity when we receive the promise of God, and we end up having to go back to the field. That we see the bright future, the picture of what it can be, and then it appears as though our life just goes back to being the exact same way it was the day before. But the beauty of the story of David is that it says that he doesn't lose hope. In fact, he uses those five years in the desert to grow in his intimacy and his revelation of the knowledge and the nature of who his heavenly father God is. So much so that five years goes by, like I said, and, and at this point now there's a war that's happening between the Israelites and the Philistine army. And there's this champion of the Philistine army. His name is Goliath. He was the son in, in this family, and they were all giants. The scripture tells us that he's around nine or ten feet tall, and he's a trained, skilled warrior. So it's basically like he's a, a, you know, a giant who's perfect at battle. 
And because of that, all the Israelites, they're kind of scattered in the sense that every day it says that he comes out and he taunts the Israelite army and mocks them and makes fun of them, calling out for the Israelite champion. And in response, the Israelites just run and hide. Every time he comes onto the battlefield, the Israelites run into their tents. They take cover because none of them want to be the one who's called out. Even so, Saul, who would have been the natural choice in the sense that he was the largest, the tallest, he was the king. Saul, we read ahead and realize that Saul is also hiding, scared in his tent. So David is sent to battle by his father in order to bring his brothers some food and some whatever it is that is necessary. Then it says that when David gets there, he's greeted by these taunts that are being shouted by this Philistine general, taunting the, the God of heaven. And he's confused because we watch as he goes and he interacts with different people and He's always wondering why no one is responding the way that he would respond in this situation. He's wondering why everyone is running and hiding and why they're not standing up for the Lord and fighting for him. So much so that he talks to his brothers and his brothers kind of make fun of him and tell him, you know, you need to go back home, you need to get out of here. And, but he's so determined that he finally makes his way into Saul's tent and tells Saul that he wants to be the champion who defeats Goliath. Now imagine this. This is a potentially 15, 16-year-old boy who other than carrying a little maybe nylon sling, like a slingshot, comes in slingshot in hand, boldly declaring he wants to go into battle against this 10-foot battle-ready armor-clad giant. And if you can imagine for a second what the response of Saul would have been, as you're imagining, is actually accurate because Saul quickly began figuring out how we, we read through all of his discouragements and David is not discouraged by his discouragements. And then in response to him not being discouraged by his discouragements, Saul then tries to put on his armor onto David because he's saying, at least maybe you'll last a couple seconds, like a couple of blows with his sword if you have my armor on. And it says that as David puts on the armor, obviously between a full-grown man and a 14-year-old boy, there's a serious height and weight difference. And so it says the armor is just clunky, it's sloppy, it's difficult to maneuver. And so David takes it off and is still so excited about the battle. And Saul is confused as to why is everyone afraid but yet you are excited. Why is everyone hiding and yet you are chomping at the bit to be able to get into battle? And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 17, verse 34. When David begins to give his explanation about why he is so ready for battle. It says this, but David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club, and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw. Okay, now think about it. This isn't like a cat, you know, because that's how it is, right? Like at my dad's house, we've had this, what is it? What is it called? A mink, okay? And we're like trying to trap it because it's eating all of his fish, this thing. But I'm thinking to myself, if, if I ever came face to face with this mink, you know, like this is like small, 
You know, David is talking about a lion or a bear, and I'm thinking of, what would I do? You know, and David just very casually is like, if it turns on me, like, this is a lion, folks. You know, like a full-dressed main lion. And he said, when this thing turns on me, I just grab it by the jaw. You know, like this is like potentially at 12 or 13, he's doing this. You know, a bear, an eight-foot, nine-foot-tall bear. And he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. I just grab it by the jaw, and I rescue the sheep. It's, I've done, he says, I've, in 36, verse 36, he says, I've done this to both lion and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. This is what I want to focus it on 37 here is watch the prediction as the power of prediction in David's life. He says this, he said, the Lord who rescued me, past tense, the Lord who was with me then from the claws of the lion and from the bear will rescue me now future, present future tense. He's saying, as I look backwards at what God did for me, I can predict into my future of what God is going to do for me. He's saying that everybody else is scared because they're focusing simply on the negative of what their future can be. But David is saying, I'm not afraid of my future because I've watched as God in my past has done things for me. And because I know the nature of God is never changing, I can use what God did in my past to predict what God will do in my future. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, I'm going to go through three quick things. And I believe that they're in each of your bulletins, my three points. Of what did David understand? Because this is the thing is, these people, although he was 15 years old, he can teach us something. That he understood something. He knew something about God. He understood something about predicting the nature of God that caused him not to run from the battle, but to run right to the middle of it. In fact, it would seem as though he's picking the fight. It wasn't that straws were drawn, you know, like on, um, you know, what's that movie called with the thing? <laughs> Hunger Games. You know how the Hunger Games and they like pick the number or the straws. or It wasn't like David, his number was called from his sect and it was like, oh shoot, like it's my, that's not what's happening here. David is selecting himself. He's kind of like Katniss, right? Where he's self-selecting to enter into the Hunger Games. And this is what happens, is we see that David is not, it's not that he's reluctantly running into battle because he has to, but he's so confident in the nature of God that he puts himself into the ring and predicts the outcome of the battle even before he picks up the stones to kill the giant. How does he do it? Number one, you have to remember the victories. You have to remember the victories. You see, this is what David did. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God has done amazing things in our life. But you know what the problem is? It's so easy to overlook them. It was like just yesterday, okay? This happened to me literally yesterday. I never go to the gym on Saturday. In fact, I rarely go to the gym Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday either. But from that you'd gather, I rarely ever go to the gym. And yesterday at about 12.15, I had an overwhelming urge 
Normally my overwhelming urges are for like pizza or tacos. I had an overwhelming urge to go to the gym. And I don't know why. And, I, and you know, I went downstairs and I was like, babe, this is going to sound so strange. I want to go to the gym. And she looks at me and says, you have a gym membership? And I was like, yes, honey, I have a gym membership. I'm like, do you mind if I go to the gym? And she's like, no, absolutely. Like, go to the gym. That's great. Like, you could use it. Uh, and I go there, and it's no big deal. I have a workout. It's cool. It's like the same as what I would expect. And as I drive home, come on, people, because this is understanding that God directs our path. As I come home, I have this tree that, like, this giant tree that, like, literally goes over top of my whole house. And yesterday, it thunderstormed at my house, and there was a, as I'm getting ready to pull into my driveway, there's a giant branch, like, not like a twig, like a branch I literally had to drag into my backyard that fell right where my car would have been parked. And, you know, from that, I could have thought it was luck, you know, chance, coincidence. But instead, I'm realizing, wait a minute, God is directing my path. He is leading and guiding me into a way that will produce prosperity in my life. That if I could just simply tune into what the Holy Spirit is saying to me, I can avoid a lot of the negativity that I experience in my life. And so David seems so courageous as he enlists himself. It was actually my mom's Jeep. And so, <laughs> doubly, doubly. So maybe it actually wasn't me. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit for my mom talking to me. Either way, the Jeep is safe. Yes, I'm, I'm feeling the download from the Holy Spirit to let me know that it was not just for myself, but it was also for my mother. It was tithers' rights for my mom, not necessarily tithers' rights for me. Although I will take them. David seems so courageous as he enlists himself to fight against Goliath because he uses his past victories to predict the future. The scripture says he remembers the lion and the bear. The scripture says he remembers the victories and uses those victories to then paint a picture to predict the future that he desires. And he tells Saul that God did it for him before. Therefore because he knows the nature of God is unchanging. The scripture says in the New Testament that, that the, the prophecy in the New Testament is the testimony of what Jesus has done in others' lives. And that if I, could find, if I could find someone who God has done something for, it's a prophetic, pro, a prophetic picture, a prophetic word to me of what God can do in my own life, because the Bible says God has no respecter of persons. If he'll do it for someone, he'll do it for me. And this is what, this is what David knew. David knew the nature of God is unchanging. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God will do it against the lion and the bear, I have full confidence that God will do it with Goliath. But let me tell you what I realized as I was preparing this message is that David's past wasn't just full of positive things. In fact, as, as I mentioned earlier, as we were recounting the story of David, David has a lot of negative things that he could have remembered about his past. He could have, as Goliath stood up, he could have remembered how his father forgot about him. He could have remembered how his brothers mocked him and, and loved to watch him fail. 
We realize that it wasn't that David was able to do what he did because he was enchanted or he had some perfect past. But it was that David knew the things to focus on when he remembered. I think all too often we can remember our failures more vividly than we remember our successes. But what David is showing us here very clearly is that our failures don't have to predict our future. That if we simply look back and remember everything God has done for us, it can predict for us the outcome that we desire to see. It's important to remember, to choose, to choose, to think about the good and ignore the bad. Number one, we have to remember the victories. Number two, we have to repurpose the weapons. So often we can feel ill-equipped to face the battles that we have with the tools that we hold. Saul saw David. He saw David's sling. He saw David's stature. And in response to this, Saul's thought was, let me give him my armor. The weapons that you have, the armor that you have, the skills, the protection, the smarts, the intellect that you have isn't good enough. And so often as we face the challenges in our life, we can so easily focus on our weaknesses. It's easy for us to see why things can't work. It's easy for us to think if we were just stronger or richer or smarter or taller, where li our life can be full of these excuses that are born out of the wrong image of how we see ourselves. And without knowing it, so often we defeat ourselves even before the battle has an opportunity to beat us. We assume the loss because we don't have what we think that we need. But you know what I've learned is that God has always given us, as I look back at my life and in scripture and in the many wonderful people that I have the opportunity to speak with, I realize that scripture tells us it's so clearly. It says that God won't allow anything to come on us, to come at us. There's no battle that we can face that God hasn't already made a way of escape for us. That the very fact that we're facing what we face, that we're experiencing what we're experiencing, should let us know that because it's here, there is also a way out. I remember hearing a story that was, it was told to me years ago, maybe when I was in my early 20s, we had a strong man, we, had these, we did this youth event, and we had these like ultra strong dudes come, you know, like fold the, the frying pan into like a taco, and you know, rip a phone book in half, we had these people come, and I can remember, I'm not, I'm not sure if it was during one of his talks, or if it was just in a conversation I was having with him, but he recounted his wife, before he had married his wife, was a Disney princess, I believe in Japan, and you know, kind of on their recruiting day as all the Disney princesses and princes and characters, as they all come in and they're given their, you know, their, their treasure chest of all the goods that they need and they open them up and they're putting them on and they're comparing what this person has. And, and out of it, their response was this overwhelming urge to compare. And, and finally, the manager comes in and he's noticing that there's these, these squabbles going on and he asks the question, what's going on here? And the princesses and the princes begin to talk about, well, this girl has this, and where's my that? And this person has this, and this person has this, and this person, and I don't have any of those things. And, 
And he, he recounts the story and he says that the man kind of stands up, the manager stands up on a chair and gathers everyone's attention and hushes the crowd and in the midst of all their chaos and their frustration. And he says these very simple words. Everything that you need to be the character that you are is already in that box. I think it's a picture to us of realizing that sometimes life and situations and failures can try to paint a picture to us to show us our weaknesses, to show us the teacher, the labels, the parent, the stuff, the failed business can try to paint these pictures, these labels on us that cause us to see ourselves differently. And so as we step into or face a battle that we're going through, we enter the battle seeing it through the lens of our weakness. Instead of realizing that everything that we need to be the person who God is asking us to be, to go through the challenges he's walking us through, we are well-equipped, just like David as he held that sling. To the natural eye, it would have seemed as though that sling was a weak, insignificant, faulty weapon to go up against a giant. But what David understood was this. He understood that it was not him. It wasn't the strength of the sling. It wasn't the sturdiness of the stone. But it was realizing that all my part is, is that I have to be willing to use what I have. Like my dad said, use what you have, do what you can. Realizing that we all have exactly what we need. Number one, we have to remember the victories. Number two, we have to repurpose the weapons. And number three, we have to redefine the battle. Israelite was afraid of Goliath because they saw the battle through natural eyes. Can I tell you, one of the biggest traps the enemy tries to set for us is to make us feel that we are alone in the battles, the trials, the troubles that we face in our life. He tries to make us feel as though it's just us, it's just me, as I walk through the difficult battle. This is why the Israelites were so afraid. Because when they saw Goliath and they saw themselves, they realized that there's no way that I can defeat this guy. And because of that, I would rather sit safe in my tent than run into battle. David changed the game. David redefined the battle because he saw that he was not the one who was running into this fight. In fact, we see that if you read on in the passage of scripture, as David, the Bible says, doesn't walk into battle. He doesn't stroll. He doesn't mosey. The Bible says that he runs into the field of battle, not proclaiming his strength or his prowess, not proclaiming the strength of his weapons, but as he runs into battle, he's shouting, I believe, reminding the, de the Goliath as much as he's reminding himself that it's not just him running into battle, but he's running with the full strength of heaven behind him. Can I tell you, we redefine the battles when we realize that we are not the ones who are fighting these battles alone. We realize that as we run into battles, as we go head on to fight against the challenges of our life, that we are not fighting alone. Can I tell you something? It does not matter how impossible it seems. 
It doesn't matter what your doctor said. It doesn't matter what your banker said. It doesn't matter what your therapist says. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what people say. God is fighting for us. And you know what the beauty about God fighting for us is? David says it like this. I've been young and I've been old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God never loses a battle. Can I speak over your future? I want to predict that the same God who beat the battle for Goliath is going to beat the challenges in your life. Can I tell you that the God who has freed us from our anxiety, from our fear, from our addictions, for the God who saved our marriages, I predict that this God is going to be the God who defeats the battles that you are facing right now in your life. I want to do this. I believe we have communion. Is that correct? As we have communion, I'm going to invite the ushers to pass this out. And I'd like to take a moment to pray over each of you. And so I'm going to ask that as you get the cup in your hand, that you would just take a moment and bow your head and close your eyes. As we take a moment of privacy and concentration, I believe that God is always asking us to respond. God is always challenging us that when we hear his word and when we hear his messages, we always have an opportunity to either continue to think the same way we've always thought or to begin to see our life and our future through the lens of the scripture. I want to ask you this question this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and you feel like you're in a battle. Maybe as I say these words and as you hear about this God who has saved David and saved my mom's Jeep, Maybe you're hearing about this God for the first time. Maybe you don't know this God in this light, and you're saying, that's the kind of help that I need. Maybe you don't know God. Maybe you haven't walked with him the way that you know you should walk with him. But I want to take a second as you hold this cup and this little wafer in your hands and use it as a reminder that this isn't just an afternoon snack so that we could talk a little bit longer. The Bible tells us that when we do communion, it's a physical representation. It's a reminder like David had as he remembered the lion and the bear. It's a reminder to us. The scripture says that if Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us, what would he not also do? It's a reminder as we hold this cup and this wafer in our hands. It's a reminder to us that we can predict our futures that we do know the will of God in our life. And that will, that desire for God is to lead us into good. And so I want to take a second, maybe as you hold that in your hand, with every head bowed and every eye closed. No one is looking around. You don't have to feel nervous or ashamed, but maybe that's you. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to count to three really quickly. And I want you to slip your hand up. You can throw it up and you can put it down really fast. I believe that when we respond to something that we know God is doing on the inside and we respond to it on the outside, there's something, there's a solidification that happens in us. So I want to ask you that as you hold this waiver, maybe that's you. Maybe you don't know God or you haven't walked with him the way that you should. I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up. Ready? One, two, three. See those hands all over the room. People are raising their hands. Can I tell you whether you raised your hand or you didn't, the future that God has for us is bright. I'm going to ask you this now really quickly. 
in unison together as one family, I just want to ask everyone to repeat this prayer after me. It's like I said in the very beginning. It's the confession of our mouth to solidify our heart's desire. So let's pray this together. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that you sent him to the cross to die for me. That he took my sin and gave me his righteousness. Say, I say with my mouth, that he is my Lord and my Savior, that he's taken my sin and in its place given me eternity with him. Say, Holy Spirit, I invite you into my life to lead me, guide me, and direct me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray your life was impacted by the service and that you were able to feel the tangible love of Jesus fill whatever space you're listening from. Maybe you found this message and you've never had the opportunity to come into a personal relationship with Jesus, or you've known about him but have been far from him. We want to give you the opportunity to make his love a daily reality in your life. Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that you and I could be close to him. He wanted to wipe away every disappointment and bring you into a life of purpose and meaning, one that will impact this globe for good. So if you'd like to begin this journey with Jesus today, then repeat the simple prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm praying this prayer because I know that I've made mistakes and have been living without you. I apologize and I trust that you will forgive me. I accept your love and grace and ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. Help me believe in you and love you every day. Help me to show the world what you're like and how great your love is. I commit to live for you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All of our Light City family are joining with heaven and celebrating over the commitment you just made to have Jesus as the Lord of your life. We have resources available for you to help you on this journey, but most of all, we're praying for you. Send us a note at info at golightcity.com to let us know about the decision you've made today. We have resources we'd love to send you uh, with some easy steps on how to go from here so that you can discover God in a real and meaningful way. If you have a prayer request, our team would love to connect with you and partner with you to see God transform your life. God bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.